Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Jonathan, and we have back with us again Mark and Beth Dennison from Florida. So thank you guys for being with us again. Thank you, Jonathan. Glad to be back. Yeah, so I don't want to waste any time this time because I feel like there's still so much more to be unpacking in in just how God has has taken you from a place of just brokenness and desperation and now has turned so much of that pain um, into a ministry. And uh, so, listeners, if you weren't with us last time, I encourage you to listen to the first um, episode that we did with Mark and Beth where they just kind of unpack their story. Uh, but I would love to just dive right in here because kind of where we left things off the last time was there was there was Mark, you had fully confessed everything to Beth and and now you guys are having to figure out what do you do next, right? Because you know, let's be honest, Beth, you had some options on the table in terms of what are you going to do about your future with this man? I mean, uh, even from a a biblical perspective, you had that that out clause, you know, uh, which, by the way, is a little sidebar. I always, I always remind people that it's a concession type thing. It's not like a mandate. Uh, so, but I would love for you to help our listeners just kind of walk them through the process of restoration in your marriage, and then and then we're going to try to dive into a little bit of what does that look like and how you do ministry now with other couples who are facing maybe similar issues. Well, I will say that um, after I discovered what Mark Mark's past had been like, and he began confessing that to me, um, it's such a different dynamic when you're in ministry because suddenly my world is falling apart, but that's our livelihood, and what do I do with this now? Um, and I wrestled with that whole thing. Do I tell anybody? What do I do? Who can you go and talk to about this? Because nobody else had found out. It was just me. And so we began going to counseling. And I think my only focus then was on the coupleship and and kind of the ministry and everything was secondary. And that I was, for people who have gone through this, you recognize you're doing good just to get out of bed and put one foot in front of the other. So all I could focus on was just us beginning to heal. And so we began going to counseling. He went to 12 Steps. We began planning to do a three-day intensive. Um, that was very important, I think, for both of us. Uh, he wasn't quite on board at first. But I felt like, um, even though he had been telling me everything, I felt like after 30 years of secrets that I was not going to be able to heal if I didn't know everything. So we did a three-day intensive with a polygraph because I felt like I needed to make sure we were on the same page that I wouldn't have these continual doubts of, is there anything else that I don't know? So that was right. that was very crucial in our healing. And so, what, so Mark, what was some of your hesitation about the three, the three day intensive? Well, I only had one, and it's called a polygraph <laughs> uh, because I told her everything, almost, <laughs> and I told her the main stuff. I thought that should be good enough. Well, we knew we needed to do a three day intensive, so I got really busy calling therapists to try to find someone who would not include the polygraph. And I wasn't able to do that, and so we fi- I finally caved and said, okay, we'll do that. I, I legitimately was concerned, and I really was, that that last little bit of information would be so devastating that it would be better to save her from hearing all of that. And so when I came to realize that that was really not an option for me, um, we went out of town, went out of state, did a three-day intensive, and it was absolutely awesome. 
the intensive was great. The polygraph was great. We've done, I think, three one-day follow-ups since then with polygraph just so that she doesn't have to wonder if there's anything at all out there that she doesn't know about. And looking at our ministry now, it's so important that we did that because disclosure is foundational for what we teach couples that is part of their healing. Mm -hmm. And so we could hardly say you need to break out of secrecy and disclose everything if I had not done that myself. So for me, it was a healing time to see her forgiveness when she heard everything uh, and the embrace that came out of that uh, has launched our marriage and eventually our ministry. We never had a clue at that, at that time there would be a ministry based on this, but it's launched us to places we never dreamed of. I have to tell you real quickly, one of the things that um, became so true, I, I've read, and I told him before we did that, I said, there's not anything that you can disclose that I have not already imagined 10 times worse. Right. And I wrote a statement that has stuck with me that in the absence of of information, our minds make up facts. And so because I didn't have full information, I was just left to imagine and it was always the worst. And so actually when we did the polygraph and and he had done the full disclosure, in a sense there was great relief because I'm like, oh my cow, it's you know, I had imagined so much worse. Um, that and, and that's what most addicts don't understand that what women really want is truth and honesty. And we can, if we know what we're dealing with, we're a lot better off than just having to wonder. Yeah. At the end of the polygraph, after my disclosure, uh, she said, you know, I thought she was just going to fall apart. And she, she, but she already knew everything, really, and suspected so much more. And so she you want to tell them what you well, said? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, after it was done, after his 15-page disclosure, the therapist turns to me and says, so what are you feeling? What are your thoughts? And I said, well, I'm just happy to know there were no farm animals involved. I mean, there was so, you know, my mind had so gone to the sure, extreme yeah. that there was nothing like that that I was like, okay, that I'm actually relieved to know that there, it wasn't near what I thought it was going to be. Um, th- so it was very therapeutic. I think of what you're describing as, you know, I've had I've had uh, conversations with, with my kids about um, – you know, uh, movies that they've seen and things like this that have been based on books they've read. And virtually 100% of the time, the response that my kids will have is, well, the movie was fine, but I have a lot more capacity in my imagination to go further than what the movie was able to show. And I think that's just the way our imaginations can be, is there's only so much that we can duplicate in, in a in a real sort of way. I mean, our imaginations can always go even further than reality. That's why we call it fantasy, right? Is because our imaginations can go beyond reality. And so I do think, the one thing I would ask about that is, uh, because I don't disagree with that idea that, you know, having information is useful because it, it, it gives us the facts uh, that are, um, that prevent our imaginations from going beyond that. But what about the way in which you disclose that information? Because, you know, one of the things that we actually uh, encourage in our ministry, even when men are being accountable to one another, is we say, listen, it's important to be specific but not graphic. Yes, absolutely. So how do you, like in your ministry then, when you're saying full disclosure is necessary, what, how do you typically walk them through that in order to avoid some things that can be damaging in how you present it versus the reality that you need the specific facts? Well, a general principle I use is that 
your wife, as I deal with guys, your wife needs to tell you how far to go. And you can always say more later. And there's a natural tendency for men when they're caught and when they're in shame mode to just vomit everything because it yeah. makes them better. But it's not about them. It's about the spouse. And so to encourage them that uh, some wives don't even want the full disclosure. Some don't want a polygraph. Most do. Some don't. So it's not for everybody. Uh, but absolutely know, guys, that whatever you say, whatever image you plant in her brain is there to stay. And once you plant that graphic image there, a particular person, specific time, certain activity that you did, you can't go back and remove that. And so that's not what she needs to hear. You'll do more damage than good. And I encourage women that I work with to not keep peppering them with questions on specific details. Uh, you know, I, I remind them that that is going to put images in there that they can't get out, that they're going to continue to battle with forever. And they just don't need to know graphic details. And so yeah. I, I try to steer them away from that. Well, don't you think that some of that is born out of this false notion that m many of us, not just women, I think all of us to a degree, have this false belief that I can actually build trust without risk, Meaning, I, yeah. if I have every single possible detail, then I can trust. And the reality is, is trust fundamentally always has a point at which there's risk. Yes. Yeah, I mean, think about it, even our relationship with God. He says, the only way you can actually know me is faith. So we can have all this reasonable evidence, which is, I mean, it's Christianity is a reasonable faith. But there's always a point at which, okay, it's a risk for me to place my trust in Christ. I'm, I'm having to believe what he's told me. And I think it's the same in a relationship, and I think maybe there's some wives, and I think it works both ways. I mean, when maybe a wife has betrayed a husband, I think there's that still still that desire that says, if I can get every single possible fact, then I can trust. And and how do you help maybe couples navigate that, that risk that's part of trust? Well, one of the things I do with women, because that's who we're typically trying to be having trust rebuilt in a relationship is to remind them that their situation is not unique in that regard in that even the healthiest of marriages, um, there are no guarantees. There is always a risk. Um, you know, you could be married to 30 years to someone who's never cheated on you, never done anything to betray you. And that doesn't mean that tomorrow they won't go out and do something. So regardless of how strong or how weak our, our marriages are, there's always that risk. We always have free choice. And so they're not unique in that situation. I think it, it helps for them to understand that it's not just because of this that there's risk. There's just always risk in relationship. Right. I always tell them the greatest risk is putting their faith in their mate. As long as their faith is ultimately yes. in God, then they have taken away the capacity for their mate to destroy them. Yeah. So I have I've gotten ahead. I need to pull us back a little bit because— now our listeners are probably thinking like I am. No, wait a second. How did you guys rebuild trust? What did, I mean, Beth, what did forgiveness look like from you? I mean, Mark, what did you do to begin to make real changes in your life? So why don't you give our listeners a little bit of the rest of the story that got you to the point where then God was prompting you to take what he had done in your lives and then turn it to use for other good? Well, I, I came to, uh, we, I got in recovery while I was still pastoring a church. And uh, that was tricky because I went all in with recovery and I knew what I had to do to stay sober. And that meant going to two 12-step meetings a week, which I still do today. I go to two 12-step meetings a week. It meant going to counseling. It meant building relationships with guys in recovery while I was pastoring the church and they didn't know all of this. 
And um, so this went on for about a year. And then my past was discovered by someone in the church and it was exposed. And I was literally on my way to a 12 step meeting when someone from the church called and said, we need to have a meeting. And so I resigned from the church that Sunday uh, by them reading a letter. And when I called Beth and told her that men in the church have learned in my past, I had to resign today. I'm at the church. He's at home. I go home. I'm just, you know, a, a, a mess, a bucket of tears. And she wasn't. She said, it's OK, because um, God's got this. And so we didn't know what we were going to do next. Just, you know, we, we didn't know. I thought I really had two options as a pastor of 30 years. One option was to move to a rural part of the country where they don't have Internet. And I could just resurface and act like, hey, nothing ever happened. I actually turned out a really good church job someplace. And I thought about that. And the other option was to sell insurance. And I don't know anything about insurance. And so that wasn't an option. And so as, as I continued in my recovery mode, uh, we knew we had to get out of where we live. We needed to rebuild our lives although we were already in recovery for a year, but we need to get away from where we were in the Houston area. So we moved to Florida to be near our son. And that's where God really started moving us in a fresh direction. And, and during that year of recovery, before it was discovered, um, I was going to meetings. I was, um, you know, growing in my own healthy journey. Uh, but I still had this nagging thought in the back of my mind that he's in recovery and this is great, but at any moment, he could be found out and our life would be gone as we knew it. And so it was kind of that haunting thing. I didn't let it, you know, stay in the forefront of my mind, but it was always kind of this nagging thing in the back of my mind. And I just felt like this is against this whole authenticity that I wanted our lives to become. And so I wrestled with that quite a bit. And what do I do with that? And should we even be in this position? I, I wrestled with that so much. And so actually when the floor was pulled out from underneath us and it was discovered. There was a sense in me of relief. Mm. There was a sense in me of now everything that, you know, we've been trying to keep secret and to grow because of is out in the open. And I just had an overwhelming sense that God had a plan. I didn't have any clue what it would look like. I had no idea there would be a ministry in this, but I just knew he had a plan. And there was a sense of relief and peace, even in the midst of the worst storm. And, and Jonathan, I'm going to tell you real quick, it's kind of ironic how that happened. The way I was discovered was my disclosure. I had it on my computer because it took me months to prepare for our therapist. I never deleted it. And so someone saw it on my computer. And so my disclosure that allowed me to come clean with my wife now allowed me against my will to come clean with my church and my world. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious just to know because this isn't this isn't everybody's story, you know. In terms of, there's I think everybody's story if they're going to get some healing requires certainly private and personal disclosure, right, within their relationships. Not everybody then has public disclosure. <laughs> so what what was the difference for you, or just how would you? describe the distinction between what it was like to go through sort of personal disclosure as a couple and deal with that and then now having to deal with this publicly. I would imagine there's some similar emotions, but maybe on a different scale or in a different way, because feeling like now you, you can't even remain where you were and just what was all, it feels like that's a whole nother wave of recovery that you had to go through together. It was traumatic because yes. the meeting I had with these men was on a Friday my resignation would be shared on Sunday, and it was a fairly prominent church. It was in the newspaper, not my past, but just the fact that I'd resigned. 
And so the paper called me. I mean, it was sort of big news where we were. And so we had from Friday afternoon till Sunday morning to tell everyone we wanted to tell personally before they would find out some other way. So that meant driving all over the state of Texas and into Oklahoma, uh, telling my brother, telling my son, telling my closest friends. Uh, I had 36 hours to do that. And so the trauma was significant. And then having to sell the house. And we found out pretty quick who our real friends were, the ones that uh, loved us despite ourselves and, and those that, you know, the relationship wasn't maybe what we thought it was. So, but the good part was the, the less we had of others, the more we relied on each other. And that prepared us for what God was going to do next. Yeah. And part of that, Jonathan, was um, God moving us to Florida to be away from everything that we had known. And I, I have to tell you, once we got here and the first time we drove across the bridge onto the island and I saw the beautiful water and we walked out there, I felt like God had scooped me up and stuck me in paradise to heal. And it was the most loving thing I felt like that he could do for me. Mm. Mm, that's great. We're from Texas, and we still love Texas. And <laughs> yeah. We love the beaches in Texas very much. Well, yeah, you, you know, you never actually get Texas out of you if you've if you've been here. So, uh, so then I'm curious. So you're you're still going through. I mean, obviously, you'd been working a year to to just kind of work on your relationship. Now you're kind of working on a a whole new type of healing. Um, you're now in Florida. What are you doing at this point? Like, at what point does it start to become a like a reality that God may be moving you into this as a ministry? Well, it was interesting. We were doing odd jobs and just kind of piecing a lot of things together. And so God was providing. Uh, when we moved, we sold our house. We sold a lot of stuff and, and got out of debt, moved to an apartment here where our expenses came way down. So we had enough to live on for a little while and then piecing everything together. We knew we'd be okay, but had no idea what our future would be. You know, got active in the church, told my pastor my story, began serving, doing all of that. But from a ministry or career perspective, I stumbled onto the story of a man who had a prominent position in a seminary who had gone through an addiction issue. He was in recovery. He shared with his board has passed and he said, why don't we start a master's in addiction recovery program for men who go through this? And so they did. So I started investigating that. And I started thinking, you know, I still worry about people discovering my past, but what if we take the bullet out of the gun? What if we share our own story? That's something most pastors just never do. And so God just started prompting me on that. And I started looking around and we discovered that Liberty University, that's not the school I was just referring to, but Liberty was offering an online course, a uh, two-year program in addiction recovery. Um, I'm too old to take two years to do anything, so I did it in a year. But we knew right away, I mean, right away when we started hearing that, I, I asked Bessa, what do you think about this? And, and it was like she was just waiting for me to say it because she had no inhibitions of sharing our struggles. And so we just felt the call of God to let our past become our platform uh, to, to help because pastors struggle with this problem, as you know, on yeah. such a high level. Well, who would be better to share with pastors than a fallen pastor? And so God made it pretty clear along about 2015 that this is where God wanted to lead us for the rest of our lives. And so we've taken the last couple of years to kind of fine-tune what that would look like, doing the preparation, getting the education, doing the training, 
getting the groundwork laid for the ministry before we actually launched it officially. We, we didn't want to launch until I had five years of recovery. Right. And so that was going to be 2018. And so that meant going to school, learning things, reading things, going to seminars, uh, meeting guys like you that have been so helpful to us. And so it, it wasn't like the light came on. We said, okay, we're going to do that tomorrow. We wanted to do it right. So we spent some time preparing this. So what was the... Uh, I, I'm, I'd like to know what your thinking was and what the conversations were behind like that five-year mark. What what made that sort of the delineation point of saying we don't want to launch until that point in time? Well, I think uh, just kind of picked a number, but the problem with going, part of me wanted to make it 10 years because I wanted to have more legitimacy in my recovery. But I don't want to be dead yet, and so that was gonna, you know, the, that was gonna work against it, and so decided because of my age, I'm I'm 25 years old, and so because of my age, I can have forever to do this, uh, but we didn't want to do it too soon because I wanted to make sure I was as solid as I could possibly be in my own recovery, and that I would not alter any of my personal recovery uh, plan and strategy. I mean, I work with my sponsor, I sponsor guys in the program. I don't tell the guys in my SA groups what that I'm doing this. I mean, some have figured it out, but uh, we wanted to make sure that our own recovery was established first. And we yeah. continue to do that because we feel like that's important for the two of us to always be using the tools of recovery and staying, uh, staying healthy, spiritually and emotionally. I also talked to a pastor of a prominent church in Houston who I went to see when this happened, and uh, I just I said, man, you give me some counsel, and, and he said that. He said, don't do anything publicly for three or four years because people are going to wonder, are you just doing this because you're trying to find your way to make a buck? Do you, and, and we're not. Uh, yeah. So it, it was helpful to, to have a period to wait and prepare. Well, and just to be perfectly honest with you, Mark, um, there's a lot of other things you could do if you're just trying to make a buck, okay? Uh, <laughs> I would, I could, I, I'm not even a uh, a business consultant, and I could tell you that this is not the plan for making a lot of money. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so then let's talk about we, you know, we got we got a little time here. Uh, what do you do with a couple that comes to you? I mean, there's a wide array of ways that this brokenness can manifest in a couple's life. So, just take us through like how a couple comes to you. Um, if your ministry is anything like ours, probably more so the wives are reaching out to you and trying to find out. How do you begin to work with this couple? What are some of the things that you try to direct them toward in terms of healing, both as individuals, but then also in terms of their marriage? Well, I, I work with the guys, and they, for the most part, have been the ones who wounded the spouse. And we know that the couple cannot recover until the addict recovers. And so I do a customized 30-day recovery plan that becomes 90 days. And it's customized based on his particular struggles, his particular needs. And so I don't just hand him a book and say, do this. Um, I use a lot of resources, but um, we'll customize that for him. And while I'm doing that, Beth is working with the wife. And then we recommend to them that they do recovery nights together. I just, with a couple last week, gave them the next 30 days of recovery nights, one night a week for the next 30 days, or four times within a month's time. Um, and so she, she works with the woman, I work with the man, and then we work with them together. And so then what? I was just going to say, I try to focus with the woman 
on her own healing. And um, one of the things I stress with them is their healing is crucial regardless of the decisions their spouse makes. Because unfortunately, I have some women whose husbands have not embraced recovery. And um, regardless of that situation, they need to pursue healing and recovery. And I try to encourage all of them to not base their security in their spouse's sobriety. Their security needs to be found in Christ, and it's worth it to them to work their own recovery. And we believe that advice works both ways. Like, I'll have guys that will tell me about how their their wife is embittered and angry, or maybe their wife has left. And they begin to realize that they have had the wrong motivation for their recovery. Uh, their motivation has been to try to get a certain kind of response out of their wife. And it's like, we say, no, no, no. Healing is something that is very specific to you individually, regardless of how your spouse works. So that works both for men and for women. And the other thing I, I often like to tell guys, and I think it's helpful for wives as well, is, you know, there's only one person that you're guaranteed to live the rest of your life with, and that's you. So you still have to, even if you were to move to the other side of the planet away from this person, you go with you. And so you still have to deal. So even if a wife decides, I'm going to divorce this man, and she's thinking that through that act, I'm going to eliminate the pain that's in my heart. She's fooling herself. Same way if a guy says, you know, I'm going to go off with my mistress, and then I'm going to, that way I can get rid of whatever the pain I think there is in my marriage. Well, he's, he's, he's going with himself. And so I do think it's so critical that husbands and wives recognize the individual components of healing in some ways before they can even address the relational components. So what do you do with a couple then when you start seeing, okay, there's some health that's happening in some of the individual components and thinking about your own relationship? What did it look like then to begin dealing with the relational elements of, the relation, of, of your marriage? How did healing occur there? And then kind of what are some things that you try to help couples see once they get to that place where they can even receive that? They've got to spend more time together, uh, not, uh, not just in the, each other's presence, but union, oneness, openness has to become a lifestyle. That what begins in that intensive moment, that moment of confession, that moment of rebuilding trust has got to be the building blocks for a lifestyle that looks like that. It can't look like something different. You can't compartmentalize it. The building blocks that you found recovery, that's how you must live the rest of your lives. Mm. Well, and two, it's, it's finding that connectedness, um, not just in recovery, because it, recovery can be all-consuming there yeah. for a while. And we try to encourage the couples to you know, take a break from it and just enjoy each other's company. Go do something fun. Reconnect whatever you can where you just start reconnecting. Um, as a couple, it's very healthy. Yeah, well, this is good stuff. I, we're we're about out of time. Um, let our listeners know how they can connect with you and and uh, and get to know you guys, and also get connected to your resources. Absolutely, uh, I write a daily devotional called uh, Recovery Minute because it takes literally one minute to read, and we'd love for people to subscribe to that. Let us send that to them. Our website is theresstillhope.org. And we're both full-time at this. Uh, she does coaching for women. I do coaching for men. And we do a lot of other things, a lot of resources for churches. I've just written a book, Porn in the Pew, that will be out in about two months. So we want to be a resource to churches, speak at events. Uh, but our website, 
therestillhope.org has all of that material available. And we would love to connect with anyone that uh, needs help, that needs encouragement. Yeah, and we will be sure to post that on our site as well when the with the episode and all of that. But Mark and Beth, thank you again for your story, for your ministry, and for your time here with us today. Jonathan, you've been a mentor to us over the last couple of years. We're so appreciative of Be Broken and your transparency and your help to us. Thank you so much for your time today as well. Thank you. You so bet. Much. Well, y'all are, y'all are very gracious to us. Thank you for that. And listeners, we're always glad that you're with us, and we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.